Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we do here is we take a piece of pop culture and reveal how there's real history underneath it. Now, this time round, we're doing something so obvious that I genuinely thought I'd already done a podcast on it. And then looking back as I started reviewing, oh, you know, what have we done? What haven't we done? And could I expand on some of these? And I'm sure I'll be coming back to some of the topics later on. I realized, oh, no, I haven't done one on Robin Hood. So, hi, welcome to the one about Robin Hood. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. I've got so much to say about this. But first of all, let's talk about the pop culture, shall we? Because this legend, and it is a legend, one of the first people... So, the very first two people I banned from my Facebook page... History Gems with a G, if you want to check it out. Every weekday, there's a piece of history on it. Lots of interesting, fun stuff there. Go and have a look. But occasionally people just get really rude and aggressive. I have a love-hate relationship with it because on the one hand, I've got some really nice, loyal followers who just have fun with me, with history. But let's be honest, every time I promote my books, I don't see a peak in book sales. And more importantly, I know I get basically about 5,000 hits, give or take, on your average article. But every now and then something really goes viral, at which point you get all these new people who have got no idea that it's just a nice little history page. No political agenda, not trying to prove anything in particular. It's just like, hey, do you know this little fact from history? It's kind of interesting. That's it. That's all it's going for. And I suddenly get all this vitriol and venom and people start arguing vociferously. The weird thing is I've got no idea which one it's going to be. Occasionally I go, oh, I think this will be a bit edgy. And sometimes it, it's it's responded that way. Other times something completely innocent turns into a huge screaming match between I don't know, America and Britain or left and right or whatever it may be. It's like, oh, I sigh. And the dumbest phrase, by the way, please never put this on the bottom of a historical article unless it's about something in the last 20 years apart from that saying huh, it's the same now it was always thus and always thus will be really isn't if it's something about i don't know medieval kingship or the roman empire no it isn't the same now there is so many differences in society to today to those 500 years ago thousand years ago two thousand years ago it, it, it any similarity is purely coincidental and cosmetic you need to calm down. 
right anyway. So I think I mentioned in the one about King Arthur that, or I mentioned about King Arthur and yeah, banned somebody when they just got very angry with me by having the audacity to say that there was no such thing as King Arthur. You are fake news. And same thing with Robin Hood. Now, if you work for the Nottingham Tourist Board and you have a livelihood at stake here, I respect that. And if you want to start turning around and saying there is historical evidence of banditry around Nottingham, yeah, that I agree with that too. And sometimes Robin of the Hood has been used as a name, not in terms of an alias like Billy the Kid, but more in the style of we don't know who this person is, so they're kind of hooded and covered, so we'll we'll call them that. All those things I agree with, but a little bit like King Arthur, if we strip away the knights and the shining armor and the holy grail and the castles and Guinevere and everybody else, you're not left with the legend of King Arthur. It's somebody completely different, probably a Roman centurion who was leading cavalry. Not the same thing. Same thing with Robin Hood. As soon as you take away Friar Tuck, Big John fights with the Sheriff of Nottingham. Steal from the rich, give to the poor. Oh, good King Richard on crusade all this stuff if you take it all away you're just left with bandits and yeah bandits existed bandits existed everywhere on planet earth throughout the whole of time whether we're talking about 500 bc in china whether we're talking about the first century ad in mesopotamia or whether we're talking about the 12th century in england right okay Banditry happened in the Wild West, too. It's not a thing that's only associated with Robin Hood. Hey, is this a bandit? This is Mr. B, and I'm gear jamming this rolling refinery. You got another Smokey on the rubber? But, as I was rapid fire going through the things there, I know that when I mention Little John, if you know anything, you've got this image of this big guy doing a quarterstaff battle with Robin as they try and cross a bridge. And Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest, laughing back and forth at what the other has to say. The evuncular, chubby Friar Tuck chuckling away with his barrel of mead or something like that, and the whole steal from the rich, give to the poor. All these things are associated with the myth, the legend of Robin Hood. And it's a powerful legend, there's no doubt about it. It's a rip-roaring yarn. Any good story that's lost centuries taps into something kind of fundamental about what humans want to hear in a good story. So please, is Robin Hood fun? Yes. Should Robin Hood legend last for centuries? Absolutely. But is he historically the same as Richard the Lionheart? No, absolutely not. Indeed, the very first versions of the stories of Robin Hood set him at the time of King Edward I. King Edward I is the grandson of King John. So it's several generations later and only a century or so after those original ones written down does it get kicked back to sort of 70 years earlier, 80 years earlier to the time of of King John, Robin Hood, all that, oh, top Robin Hood, Richard the Lionheart and all that good stuff. So if we're going to look at the absolute pinnacle of Robin Hoodness, you have to talk about The Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938, starring Errol Flynn. And that is the absolute coda 
the law, L-O-R-E, of Robin Hood writ large with the swashbucklingness of it all. You've got the romance with Maid Marian, and indeed it was marketed. You can, you can, well, you can see the movie all over the place. It's please, it's in colour. It may be from 1938, but if you've got a 10-year-old you want to entertain, boy or girl, then sit them down in front of that. They will just find it fun. You know, it's always got a bit of action on it. The, there's a bit of romance there, and it was marketed as the greatest romance of all time. But don't think they'd scrimp on the action as well. Errol Flynn was the action hero of his age. Good swordsmen, good archers, good fighters. Are you with me? It's Errol Flynn as Robin Hood. But if you like, a little bit unusually, nowadays we tend to have romantic leads or we have the action leads. Somebody like Bruce Willis has tried to be both. We all know what he's better known as. But particularly if you get to people like Stallone and Schwarzenegger or The Rock, they don't really do romantic leads. We want to see them be battered and bloodied and gun down a whole bunch of bad guys. That that we can get behind. We don't then want to see them snogging somebody, okay? But... Errol Flynn was able to be the guy that men wanted to be and the guy that women wanted to be with. I guess the closest to that is somebody like Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. There's definitely a romantic angle. There's lots of women who find him very attractive in those movies, but the guys loved him for his sort of manly action. Let's put it like that. And Errol Flynn got there first and he... He really tore up the screen and was just a huge Hollywood star in the 30s and 40s. Absolutely massive. So this is a movie that absolutely stands the test of time. And then we have to wait a long time because, yes, in the 1970s, we, we've got, for example, the Disney one where we got Robin Hood as a fox animated. OK, there's Robin and Marion where we got a sort of an, a, an older statesman like Robin Hood with Sean Connery, where basically he sort of hung up his hood, as it were. He's out there. Marion. He expects me. I think one madman's enough. Then, of course, in 1991, we get Kevin Costner as Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which I will be destroying in a moment. I will be tearing that to pieces. But interestingly, at the same year, there was another Robin Hood movie that came out just called Robin Hood in 1991. You've never heard of that one because it was the Costner one that just blew the doors off of the box office. Back in the 1980s, there was an excellent British TV show called Robin of Sherwood, which had this beautiful clanad theme tune to it. all sort of very smoky and misty and they looked pretty good there's definitely some 80s floppy hair going on there but okay maybe it's because i grew up with it but i always had a soft spot for that particular series and i think generally if you look at it it's held up pretty well now admittedly we have a bit of whitewashing going on as the saracen in inverted commas is played by a white guy wearing basically some bronzer but do we allow that i don't know that that's over to you you got morgan freeman in the 1991 version being a Moor, and Moors were more Arab rather than actual black, but there were absolutely black Muslims throughout the Middle East, but yeah, yeah, okay, fine. Look, Morgan Freeman's great. Like I said, I'll be coming back to that one. However, the absolute nadir of Robin Hood was the 2018 version starring Tyron Egerton, Egerton, I think his name is, and he 
it's basically Batman Begins, the first Christopher Nolan movie remade as Robin Hood. There is a scene in it where they're on crusade and there's a group of archers walking, surveying a local area. And it is absolutely taken from the way a modern military unit would be working through an urban environment. He's reloaded. Listen up. Two volunteers for a backsling. Hmm? Somebody had done their research about modern military tactics. There is not a moment of that film that is either realistic or in any way referencing the Middle Ages. It's referencing a Batman movie and somehow making you think maybe, just maybe, it might be in the Middle Ages. It's it's mind-blowing how off that film was. It's a huge flop. Uh, but it was a huge flop for pretty good reasons. Because if you like, the thing about Robin Hood is it's so well known. Do we need an origin story? This has been an argument multiple times for Batman movies. Like we all know Bruce Wayne is a an orphan and blah, blah, blah. Spoilers. And therefore trying to sort of reinvent him in edgy. It's been a long time. 1991, Kevin Costner. The next time we got a major historical Hollywood attempt at it, you got 2010 with Russell Crowe and Ridley Scott, and they sort of did gritty as well. If you like, that movie ends with him becoming Robin Hood. Before that, he's kind of a minor noble who's been taken, had his lands taken away from him. And it's all to do with the, it's all towards the end of John's reign, where we've got a French invasion of England. This all happened. This is all true. It's actually, it's a pretty good movie, but it was clearly trying to set itself up to be the start of a series, a franchise. I mean, this is the first time in 10 years that Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe had done a period piece together. And there was sort of like big expectation. This is going to be like Gladiator. It's not nearly as much fun as Gladiator. It's all a bit po-faced, to be honest, but at least they're trying to make it sort of linked to some real history and trying to make it look like it could actually be happening in the 12th or 13th centuries. But let's go back, shall we, to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. That noise in the background is me sharpening some knives for this film. Because if you want me to say that it's fun, it is. It's Adventures of Robin Hood, 1938 Errol Flynn levels of fun. But it has some very serious crimes because whereas the Flynn version doesn't have any annotation on the screen, this is basically, we're going to tell you a story and it's going to be rip-roaring fun. Good, good, I now know the tone. But when you get the opening of this film with the Bayer tapestry, that's a real historical document. And then it flashes up Jerusalem 1194. So it looks like this thing has done some research, but already with the opening credits and then that title of Jerusalem 1194, we already know, if you know much about history, this is completely wrong. It's utterly off the rails before anybody's actually said anything in the movie. Allow me to explain. First of all, the Bayer Tapestry depicts the Battle of Hastings. There's much debate about exactly when it was made and where it was made. By the way, it's not a tapestry. It's basically, I think it's crochet. I think that might be the better term for it. Anyway, the point is, it seems to be made in Britain. It seems to be made maybe 10 years after the events of the Battle of Hastings. But the point is, it's showing stuff from 1066 made in maybe the 1070s. What's this got to do with 1190s? 
it's it's more than a century later. There is nobody in the film that has got anything to do with the Norman conquest of England. If anything, it implies that the current kings and queens of England are illegitimate because they whacked the locals round the head in 1066. <sighs> but it's old. It's medieval. So they shoved it in there. Then, Jerusalem 1294. Why is Jem getting so bent out of shame about this? So, this is all to do with the Third Crusade. If you want to know a lot more about this, I'm just putting it out there. I wrote Deus Vault, A Concise History of the Crusades. It was my first proper history book that got published by Ambly Publishing. You can get it wherever you want to get a book. Jim Daduce is the name. Pretty easy to do a Google search for that name. That's D-U-D-U-C-U for the surname and J-E-M at the front. So if you want a lot more detail about the Third Crusade, go and have a look at the book there. What happened was, before the Third Crusade, there was this guy called Saladin who wiped out almost all of the Christian lands in the Middle East. So therefore, there was a desperate call for a new crusade to go east to try and reclaim some of these lands and push Saladin back. The major player of this crusade was a guy called Frederick Barbarossa. He was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, but unfortunately on the way he managed to fall off his horse and drown in this very small river, which meant that the colossal Germanic army that was going with him, almost all of them just went home. The boss isn't here. Oh, okay, we'll go home. A few of them did make it to the Holy Land. So this suddenly meant that the French king and the English king suddenly became more powerful. They were always going to play second fiddle to an emperor, but now the emperor's dead. Well, king beats baron or earl or anything else. So with that in mind, you've now got these two men who are basically mortal enemies, Philip Augustus of France and Richard I of England. Now, I want to be quite clear on this. Richard was a terrible king of England. In his 10-year reign, he spent 11 months in England. I know some of that wasn't his fault, but generally he didn't like England very much. Raising money for the crusade, he said, and this is a direct quote, I would sell London if only I could find a buyer. He just saw England as a cash cow for largely his lands in France. This is a man born in France who spoke French first. We don't know how much English he could speak, but he definitely spoke French. He was a terrible king. Why is he well remembered? Because he's a winner. The one thing we cannot deny is he is a great general. But being a great general is not the same thing as being a great ruler or administrator. For further information, look at Napoleon. He knew how to win a battle. He had no idea how to run France. So that's the situation at the beginning of the Third Crusade. In case you're wondering about what makes a great ruler versus a great general. Well, well, let's not have to spend time on the ruler side of things, but boring stuff like administration, logistics, social justice and reform, all really important. But what makes a great general? You get all this banded around all the time. Oh, they were a great general. That was a great general. Of course, great is in the eye of the beholder. But some things to watch out for is, first of all, did they just make their name in one war? Because if they made their name in one war against one type of enemy in one kind of terrain, they were very good at that. But we have no idea how they would deal with a different type of enemy. This is one of the reasons why Alexander the Great is so great, because he fought so many different types of armies in so many different types of terrain. 
He won them all, which is important. But that brings me on to point two. You've got to win. <laughs> really important. Napoleon is one of the greatest generals ever, and he did win for about 20 years. But critically, he eventually lost. Why am I such a loser? Which gets him minus points, if you like. He does do the first thing. He fights in multiple different continents against multiple different types of enemies. But again, partly to do with the political leadership side of things, he managed to alienate the whole of Europe. So it was kind of inevitable that the whole of Europe was eventually going to grind him down and get him. The other thing you've got to think about is, well, okay, so let, let's go through it. So first of all, variety of different enemies. Secondly, they've got to be actually be a winner. The winner takes it all. And thirdly, they've got to do kind of multiple campaigns, multiple different areas. I've kind of sort of mentioned all of these, but I think those three areas are important. This is why in the rest of the world, we generally don't think that the various generals of the US Civil War should be up there with the likes of Napoleon and Alexander the Great, because all they ever did was fight against one type of enemy, which they pretty much already knew what their tactics were going to be. And so, yes, somebody like General Lee, he managed to do more with less of everything than the other guy and managed to keep it going for quite some time. But again, he was up against some really substandard generals and ultimately he lost. All these things are definitely bad marks against him being an overall awesome general. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Back to Richard. One of the greatest generals in Europe was Philip Augustus, that king of France. How do we know? Because as soon as, as Richard died, he started beating Richard's brother, King John, every available opportunity. Now, you could argue that John was a terrible leader, and he was, but the point is, we've already got somebody who's on the back foot suddenly beginning to build up a head of steam, and John could just never beat Philip, whereas Richard 
could never lose against Philip. He just beat him all the time. Then we got Saladin, who had fought against multiple Muslim armies, but also, as I mentioned, wiped out pretty much the whole of the Crusader states, part bar one city, in the Middle East. Then Richard turns up and Saladin cannot beat him. Richard wins a siege. Richard wins an ambush. Richard wins a pitch battle. I mean, these are the sort of key types of combat and conflict that you would have in the Middle Ages, and every time Richard wins. So, yeah, he's pretty good. He can fight in the Middle East, he can fight in Europe, he can do sieges, he can... all kinds of things. The guy was a great general, terrible ruler. Again, want to emphasize that. Now, this is important because, as I've just said, Saladin just couldn't beat Richard. In other words, Richard won all his battles. So why is Robin Hood, Kevin Costner, in a jail in Jerusalem. For starters, the Third Crusade never got to Jerusalem. Long story, again, Deus Vult, the book, tells you everything you need to know about that. So how did he get captured and why is he in Jerusalem? More importantly, the year is 1194, the Third Crusade ended in 1192. What's he been doing for two years? Why has he been in prison for two years? These things are never answered. Anyway, he manages to break free with Morgan Freeman and then they say, let's go to England. Now, when Richard was on his way back from the Third Crusade, he very famously got caught and we literally had to pay a king's ransom to get him back again. So it was just dangerous to cross Europe. Do you remember I mentioned those bandits? Just generally tough to get across Europe, the whole of Europe, you know, from, let's say, modern day Israel all the way to London, apart from airplane, it's it's a real hassle, be it by ship or by walking or by car or whatever. It will take you a long time. And yet the next scene is the two of them at the White Cliffs of Dover. I'm telling you, the journey from Jerusalem to, to Dover, that's the movie. That's all kinds of excitement to get there. However, he then announces at Dover that they will be at Nottingham by nightfall, which because the sky is already light, the sun is in the sky, that means he's saying maximum 12 hours. We don't know what time of the year it is, but let's presume he's giving himself 12 hours to get to Nottingham. Now, you can do that with modern roads and a car. You cannot do that on a horse and you certainly can't do that on foot. How did he get there? We don't know. But it gets better because the next shot is not in Nottingham. Oh, no. And then because they wanted the nice shots, because that's what American directors and, and Hollywood does in general. The next moment, there they are at Hadrian's Wall. They have overshot Nottingham by more than 100 miles. The mind boggles. So before I tell you anything else about the movie, I've just described the opening five minutes and you can see how riddled with errors it is. And yet it's trying to sort of say, oh, 1194, oh, you know, this is this is really real. You know, this all kind of happened. No, none of it happened. Another point, they managed to escape a castle by jumping into a catapult, which would never have been there. You don't have catapults inside castles, particularly when there is no war going on. And they fire it and they go over the wall and land comfortably on the other side. That is not how a catapult works. Even you know that listening to this, you may not be an expert on siege warfare, but clearly the idea of a catapult is not to give the rock a nice soft landing. No. 
both of them would have been smeared against a tree in the forest. It's awful. Now, look, for the record, Alan Rickman, shortly after the huge joys of him being a baddie in Die Hard, gets to be the Sheriff of Nottingham and is clearly having a whale of a time. Cancel the kitchen scraps for lepers and orphans. No more merciful beheadings. And call off Christmas. Lots of people said, you know, he's kind of looking sexy as well. If that's your thing, then that's your thing. But what I would argue is, or what I would point out to you, is the fact that he was so good that a number of his scenes... First of all, he was ad-libbing like crazy and making it far more funny, whereas Kevin Costner's being kind of sombre. He's taking this rather seriously, whereas... Rickman knows exactly what this is. This is just pantomime stuff. So he's just going to just over-egg it at every available opportunity. And apparently quite a few of his best bits we never got to see in the movie because he was obviously stealing the film from Kevin. Another thing, Maid Marion seems to know martial arts in this. How martial arts, of course, come from the Far East. How she picked them up, I don't know. But more importantly, there's a breakdown of logic because whereas she is clearly shown to be good enough at martial arts to cause Robin the hero problems the sheriff is able to grab her and she suddenly becomes a whimpering damsel in distress forgetting all of her kung fu karate ninjutsu whatever it is that she knows all disappears so that alan rickman can grab her and now she has to be a thing saved not very cool i think you can tell I, I'm going to say I have a love-hate relationship with this movie because I love hating it. It's just, it's the laziest form of Hollywood that you can get. As you can tell, I also clearly love The Adventures of Robin Hood because it's, it's being honest about what it is. Welcome to some complete escapism. And that, that's what we get. Whereas this is sort of going, oh, you know, we're a bit edgy. You know, this is a bit re more realistic. No, it is less realistic than the Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938. For the record, in that you can clearly see that nobody is wearing chain mail, technically mail armour. It's clearly all dyed wool. The other thing is that the insides of castles in all Hollywood films are huge. And yet they never were. Castles are fairly cramped affairs, okay? Yes, they might have something called the Great Hall, but if you compare the Great Hall of a castle to what you would see as maybe like a, the, a big hall, sports hall of your school, your high school, you would realize it's much smaller than something like that. And yet you get these epic cavernous things with, particularly in the adventures of Robin Hood, you get this sort of, it's kind of corkscrew series of steps going up on the outside of a tower, which is never a thing in castles. All those kind of circular stairwells are inside the tower and the tower is too big. And just, just everything is wrong, but it doesn't matter because they're having fun and you get that this is just fun whereas Robin Hood Prince of Thieves if you want me to get really technical he arrives at his ruined castle ruined manor house oh by the way his father is Brian Blessed there is no way that Brian Blessed would ever have sired somebody with a Californian accent and why should the people listen to you because unlike some other Robin Hoods I can speak with an English accent as in as somebody like Kevin Costner. Those two in no way are related at all. Don't try ask me to believe that. But if you want to get super technical, the castle that he's standing in front of has gothic windows that are ruined, by the way. But God, that, that kind of architecture happened maybe 150 years after the time of Robin's era. And so why is it in ruins? I can understand why he's upset. This is a very high-tech kind of castle that he's looking at in ruins. Look, I could go on and on and on. I won't. 
I will do you a favor, okay? So let's have a look at what was actually going on at the time of when Robin Hood is alleged to have existed. Going back to Richard, as I mentioned, Third Crusade. Crusades are expensive. And the thing that we all know about is how onerous the taxation was at the time of evil Prince John trying to extort all this money. Every town has a taxes too, and the taxes is due. Not true. That exorbitant tax was nicknamed the Saladin Tithe. Tithe being a kind of form of payment or taxation. And so I mentioned Saladin. And so everybody knew that crusades were expensive. And what the Pope gave as a kind of indemnity to all of these leaders to encourage them to raise up arms and send armies to the east was to say, you're allowed to have a one-off tax. Not allowed to do it to pay off your debts or to build a nice palace for yourselves, nuh -uh. it's all got to go towards the actual armed forces. But this was a 10% on, on your revenues. That's a pretty hefty tax on top of all the other normal taxes that you would pay for. As I've already mentioned, Richard would happily have sold London. Richard needed a lot of money to go on this crusade. Just to go back to the first crusade for a moment, to the time of kind of William the Conqueror's sons. So at the time when it was announced, hey, let's go off on first crusade, I'm paraphrasing, you have King William II. He's one of the sons of William I, William the Conqueror. He's running England and Robert, He's the Duke of Normandy, which is obviously where William came from. Both of these guys are brothers. Robert decides he's going on the First Crusade. And it was so expensive, he mortgaged the entire duchy of Normandy to his brother William I of England. And only a king would have enough money to cover the costs of the mortgage of a duchy. But that's how much it cost Robert to go on the First Crusade. So fast forwarding basically a hundred years. So when you get Richard trying to raise revenues as, you know, so was Frederick Barbarossa in, in, in Germany and same thing with Philip Augustus in France, all of them needed ready cash to build these massive armies or relatively large armies to go out east. So this taxation's got nothing to do with Prince John and everything to do with Richard, who once again, I want to emphasize terrible King of England, very good general. The other thing is when he went off, Prince John was not put in charge of England and its finances. No, Richard put it in care of his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, this amazing medieval woman who, well, she's linked to the crusade. She's one of the few queens who went on crusade. Now, you might think, okay, so she went with her husband, you know, the King of England off to crusade. Uh-uh, no, this is the second crusade. It was a complete disaster. I'm not going to go into it again. Deus Volt the book, check it out uh, for, for more details. She was originally married to the King of France. And she went on crusade with him on the second crusade and it caused quite the scandal. There was rumors that she was having an affair with her own uncle. Ugh. There's no evidence of this. It seems to have just been sort of scandal and gossip. But the point is she fell out badly with the King of France. Now, if you want to think about somebody like Henry VIII and how he kept divorcing wives and occasionally executing them too, think about this. We're talking about the 1100s and we're talking about a woman who wants to get a divorce in a very patriarchal society. But even more than that, she wants to divorce the King of France. 
and she got her way. Just that one fact alone lets you know how powerful Eleanor is. Aquitaine was a huge chunk of France, roughly 20% of what modern day France is. So everybody wanted that dowry, but funnily enough, the King of England, Henry II, the dad of Richard Lionheart and King John, Henry II marries Eleanor, and the two are a great match. They get on really well. It's a genuine love match. And so it ends happily for Eleanor. It also ends happily for Henry, because he's just got a massive chunk of France on top of Normandy and a few other bits that he's already got. Haha. <laughs> so yeah, they, if you like, this is where we get the concept. It's, it's completely wrong. The idea of the Angevin Empire, because you basically close to... 40% of France is owned by the King of England, and then they also own England, and they also own the border territories of Wales. So if you want to argue it's an empire, it does cover multiple different countries and multiple different languages. So yeah, that kind of fits, except at no point was the King of England also the King of Normandy or the King of Aquitaine or wherever. Instead, they had to be the Duke of Normandy, which led to this whole argument that lasted centuries between the French king goes, oh, you have to pay me homage. You have to suck up to me to legally have your lands in France. And the English king going, um, I'm king of England, make me. Pretty good summary of 200 years of arguing between the kings of England and France there. But anyway, I digress. So to start pinning all this taxation on John is unfair. Most of this taxation came from Richard. And then when he got caught in Europe, remember that bit? And we had to raise a king ransom yep that means another tax on everybody in england because silly old richard managed to get caught sneaking through territory where he managed to offend the leader of that territory while on crusade long story so now we got eleanor raising a new tax a new onerous tax to pay for richard to come back home none of this is john's fault although john was being very sneaky and trying to make sure that richard wasn't properly paid off so that maybe he'll become king didn't have to worry about that because richard ends up dying at a siege basically what happened was that there was a very minor siege going on in france where he's fighting against philip augustus philip wasn't actually there at the time where at dusk time when richard was walking his dog a young boy, teenager, was on the battlements of this castle, saw somebody in the distance, raised their crossbow, took a shot, got lucky, hit Richard basically in the neck. Richard then lies there, dying. He knows he's mortally wounded. Uh, you know, he's not even middle-aged now. And he actually asked for the person who hit him to come and see him during the siege. And so the boy arrives and he basically gives him a bag of gold and says to everybody, but basically commends him on the shot and says to everybody else, don't you touch him, you know, he did fair. And uh, everybody agrees. And then he dies, you know, pretty much that evening. That's a pretty cool way to go. That's a pretty nonchalant, almost James Bond-esque sort of like kiss-off line. However, the nobles being more loyal to the idea of Richard than specifically what Richard said, skinned him alive the next day. The, the boy, by the way. Not a nice end for him. Sorry about that. So all of this is sort of like mixed in with the the myth, the legend of Robin Hood, which again has been told over and over again. In the Victorian era, there were loads of books about him. And of course, that evolved into lots, myriads of movies and TV shows. But if you like, the concept of Robin Hood goes even beyond movies, TVs, books, video games, etc. 
to the point where it, it's just in the culture, not just in Britain, but around the world. At the time of Bonnie and Clyde in the 1930s, the whole public enemy era of like gangsterism, they were often described as modern day Robin Hoods, stealing from the rich and giving it to the poor communities at the time of this great recession in Great Depression even in America find that fascinating that these genuine gangsters who are very dangerous people and went down in a in a big old shootout being ambushed because they were so dangerous and had a very regular habit of killing law enforcement but they also killed local people as well unlike robin hood in the legends he only went for the baddies whereas uh, funnily enough life isn't that easy and if you're a dangerous violent gangster sometimes people innocent people get killed in the crossfire you may feel sorry about that but you still killed them and that's exactly Exactly what happened with Bonnie and Clyde. But you've now got these, you know, 20th century dangerous individuals being compared to this mythological person from a completely different type of society from a completely different continent. It is also worth pointing that out. And again, you occasionally get references to this sort of thing in politics. Nobody likes paying taxes. Go back to the whole Robin Hood era, okay? Nobody wants to pay taxes. Uh, nobody likes onerous taxes. So sometimes you get politicians realizing that they're going to have to fund their thing, whatever it may be. For example, I don't, it might be funding sort of green improvements to the economy, or it might be funding more for social welfare or something like that. And so they'll make it sound nice. It's like, yeah, gonna have to pay 2% more on your income tax. Nobody likes that. But if you say it's a Robin Hood tax to spread the wealth a bit better, that might still annoy you, but it isn't quite as bad as just going, yep, income tax going up 2%. It's, that, it's now a case of something a bit more noble. It's part of this legendary thing as somebody goes, ha ha, and slaps their thigh and then rides off into the sunset kind of thing. For the record, Nottingham does have a very large forest near it and there is the robin hood tree which is very old and certainly would have existed at the time of robin hood had he been a real person and there was this claim that they would gather underneath it or maybe hide inside it it's a very big tree by the way but no, no no evidence of it whatsoever but this is the thing i can understand why americans get confused about british history and i think it's really unfair that the brits kind of mock them because if you go to baker street in london there is a plaque for for sherlock holmes he never existed he never lived at that spot okay and yet there is a plaque commemorating him the name sherlock holmes and the address is 221b baker street and i'm gonna argue that sherlock holmes is more believable as a story, a very bright investigator, than Jack the Ripper, which sort of sounds almost made up. Then we've got King Arthur and Robin Hood, and we got we got lots of places around Britain with names like you know, Robin Hood's Forest or Robin Hood's Tree or King Arthur's Seat in Scotland, etc. All these places seem to make them as real as William the Conqueror or Richard the Lionheart or whoever, Eleanor of Aquitaine. But the reality is, there's you know you have to go back to the sources. I'm sorry, it may be a great story, you may put a smile on your face, and that's good, but that's not the same thing as historical fact. <laughs> well, folks, that's the way it really happened. 
and that point i'm going to leave it thank you very much for listening as always come on guys you can send me ideas on twitter i'm at gem on twitter and please click subscribe please put a review out. it's been quite a long time since we've had reviews on amazon so if it's been a while not amazon i should say apple so if you are listening to this on apple podcast then if you could give us a, a, a review that'd be lovely thank you very much and i will hopefully speak to you soon Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.